This episode of the Julian Dion Comedy Hour podcast is brought to you by Echo One Photography. Are you in the greater Toronto area and looking for some headshots or really any photography needs fulfilled? Well, look no further. Echo One Photography does it all from headshots for actors and comedians to corporate headshots, even social and dating website profile pictures. That's right. Don't take a selfie. Get it done by a professional. Increase those odds. They'll do it all. Product photography for your business, for e-commerce and advertising purposes. Once again, Echo One Photography does it all. Email Eugene at EchoOnePhotography.com today. That's Eugene, E-U-G-E-N-E, at EchoOneNumberOnePhotography.com. Enter J-D-C-H in the subject line. Message to my mom Message to my mom This is a message for my mother, who is now on Facebook and online, so may very well have stumbled upon this podcast. So mom, if you're listening, let me first say that I love you very much. You're a great mom, always have been and continue to be to this day. And secondly, let me ask you to please not listen to this podcast. You know, this is a comedy podcast. It's uncensored. I interview comedians and other creative, fascinating, interesting people, so I don't have any control over what's said. We might discuss some not-so-tasteful topics and have some salty language peppered in there, so you might not like what you hear. So please, I beg you, if you're listening, please turn it off. You know, they say to truly become a great artist, you can't care what other people think of you. And that really begins with your parents. You cannot care what your parents think about your output to truly reach your full potential. So I ask you, Mom, please let me be great by not having to think in the back of my mind that you're listening to this. And if you do choose to listen, just know that I love you very much. Message to my mom. Message to my you from Lemon Press Studios in the Distillery District, downtown Toronto. Here we go. It's the Julian Dion Comedy Hour podcast. Hi. Hi, hi, hi. Welcome, everybody. Thank you so much for choosing this podcast as your podcast to fulfill your podcast needs. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. Off the top there, what can I say? That's Garage Baby, of course. Who else? The lovely, the talented, 
Garage Baby, whom, if you've been to the live show, the live, the Julian Dion Comedy Hour show here at Say What every other Wednesday, downtown Toronto, you'll recognize these guys. They're the house band. They, they're up there with me. They're up there with the comedians. They play the comics on and off stage. They interact. They're a great bunch of guys. They're super talented. I'm thrilled to work with them. I'm thrilled to have them in my life. I sounded unsure about that, but I mean it. That's, that's from the heart. The shit is real. I'm getting real right off the top. Look at that. Look at that. Thanks for listening. You might be here with me on the ground floor. We're taking off. This has been a brainchild of mine for a few years. Some of you may or may not know already. I've been talking about this for a long time. And it's finally happening. So if you are with me on the ground floor, thank you. Let's do this together. We're going to go on this journey. I don't know where this is going to go. I don't know in which direction it's going to take off, but we'll see. You're here. I'm here. That's all that matters right now. So let's do this. You may also be listening from a retrospective perspective where you're, 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 we're 279 episodes in and I've had a good guest on. And you're coming back into the archives, digging deep, seeing how it all began here. You're from the future. Welcome to the past. Life is cozy in the past. I want to see that quote on a t-shirt. That's a t-shirt if I've heard one. Thanks for being here. Uh, whether you're working out right now or on a road trip or heading in onto work or on the subway, I'm here. It's all good. I'm caressing you with my voice into your ear. Zzz. Two ears, maybe one. If you're reading this from a transcript, well, then I've wasted my time. Uh, I don't know what I'm talking about. Okay. This is it, the Julian Dion Comedy Hour podcast, episode one. I'm very excited. Uh, let's do this together, okay? This is going to be a good show. This is going to be fun. I got to admit off the top, I don't have any broadcasting experience, okay? So go easy on me. Let's let's chill. This is experimental. You're part of it. I'm going to tell you a little about uh, about myself. I, I know that's sort of a hackneyed way to get into things, but... I'm sure some of you out there don't know me. I hope. I hope I'm, I have a far bigger reach than just friends and family, which if you are friends and family listening to this, thank you. If you're a stranger, thank you. About myself, I'm a comedian of eight years, originally from Moncton, New Brunswick. Actually, Skidook. Let's put Skidook on the map. Little town. Started comedy eight years ago in 2006. There's a Yak Yaks that opened in Moncton and in Halifax, two clubs which are about two and a half, three hours apart. Started on, started on amateur night. was terrible. It was hard, man. That's the thing about starting comedy is you kind of have an idea that you're going to be terrible doing it because there's no other way of doing comedy than exposing yourself in front of strangers. Because, for example, a musician, if a musician gets on stage, by the time they actually perform in public in front of people, They've spent, they've logged hours and hours of practice and they've locked that shit down. For a comedian, what you have to do is get up there and do it with no experience. And it's painful. But again, you start, you kind of know it's going to be hard and, and not that good. But then 
and then that you might look back on it and frown on it, but then you start doing it, and you're like, hey, this isn't too bad. You do it. It's terrible. You see all the other people on the shows, your shows just killing, and you just can't figure it out quite yet. But meanwhile, you're thinking, hey, I'm doing it. It's not too bad. Then, of course, a few years go by, you look back, and you just think, ugh. How did I do that in front of people? That was just embarrassing. So I started in Moncton. Did stand up there. At that point in my life, I was a financial advisor. That's right. Yeah. I had the short hair, the suit and tie. And it was soul-sucking. For me, I didn't... I felt like I was an imposter doing it. I never felt quite right. I remember being in a meeting with a client, with a business partner of mine, and my partner was into it. He was just neck deep, loving it, passionate. And I remember feeling that, man, I feel like we're bothering this guy. And it hit me. I'm sure my partner's not feeling this way. He's, this is what he's meant to do. He was wildly successful at it, and he he was meant to do that and i i just always felt like i just quit like i did it and i was i did it well but i just it never never felt i don't know how many times i can re reiterate that move on so at that point in my life i started getting into comedy it's always something i wanted to do started on the amateur nights and then this thing happened where i got a ton of experience my first like year and a half where the headliners for the clubs would fly in from Toronto or all over the country and they would, on their off nights between Moncton and Halifax, they would have to do these one-nighters, we call them, these little gigs in small towns all over the Maritimes. And of course, I had a car at that point, which, so I became sort of a glorified taxi driver. I would get hired by Yuck Yucks to drive these guy to the guys to the gig and girls. And I would do 15 minutes of comedy off the top. I'd open up the shows with 15 minutes that I didn't have, by the way. I had maybe two, one and a half, two minutes of half-decent to decent material. I ate it for the first year and a half on the road. But man, valuable experience just being thrown into the fire, driving for hours with these headliners, picking their brains, asking questions, getting real work experience right out of the gate, which is really unheard of. So I am grateful for that, even though those years were pretty painful, trying to figure out the comedy thing. Because the thing is, you know what good comedy is, that's why you get into it, but you can't match it because you don't have the skill set to do so. So a year and a half after doing that, the club in Moncton closed. So here I am, I had quit my financial advising position at that firm, and here I am just doing stand-up. Got a part-time job in a restaurant, and I just was doing it. The club closed, and then I made the move to Ottawa. I had met Howard Wagman, the club owner in Ottawa. At that point, there were two yuck yucks in Ottawa, and so he had seen me early on in Moncton and seen some sort of promise in me, which to this day, I don't know what he saw, but he saw something, so he told me to, he suggested I move to Ottawa, and he could then work me as one of his local guys and do some little road gigs here and there. Sort of the same thing I was doing in Moncton. So I took him up on it moved to Ottawa. At that point in my career, uh, you can't see me right now, but I'm doing air quotes in my career, I was 
a year and a half in to, to two years in, and so I wasn't exclusive with Yuck Yucks. There's this thing in Canadian comedy, there's really two circuits. There's the Yuck Yuck circuit, where they have a roster of comedians, and to be on that roster, you have to sign an exclusivity contract, which means you can't perform in any city that has a competing club. And then there's the independent circuit, with which is a, a growing and um, evolving circuit to this day. Both good. Both have pros and cons. At that point, I wasn't signed with anybody, so I could sort of work both sides of the fence. I worked Yuck Yucks there, and I also worked the Absolute Comedy Club in Ottawa, which arguably one of the best, if not the best, comedy club in Canada. Mr. Jason Lawrence there, he sort of uh, was good to me and provided work. So I did that for about a year in Ottawa. Then after... Like I said, a year, so now I'm three and a half years in or so. I'd always had this fascination with New York City, moving there. The, the idea, the notion of doing stand-up comedy in New York just was so romantic to me. I just always wanted to get down there and do it. Even before getting into comedy, I fantasized and dreamed about one day doing stand-up in New York. It's the Mecca. It's New York. I was a huge Seinfeld fan, and that documentary Comedian came out, I think, in 2004 or ish 2001 maybe one or four one of th one of those two four i'm gonna say four and i was just obsessed with it and out of the blue i got a phone call from my buddy brady who i had i had met back home at that restaurant job he was originally from new orleans from louisiana and he had decided after katrina to go explore and discover the cajun the acadian motherland which is, of course, the east coast of Canada, where I'm from, Skidook, putting Skidook on the map. I guess Skidook isn't really the, 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 the motherland, but the whole area. Anyway, I digress. So I met Brady, this very talented short story writer, just this brilliant artist. And when we worked at the restaurant together in Moncton, we sort of always riffed on how one day we'd live together in New York. We'd get an apartment and just do it. And of course, logistically, as, as a Canadian, it's hard because there's all these papers that need to be filled out and these these uh, immigration. You need to get visas and all that. It's actually much more complicated than it sounds. So I get this call out of the blue. I'm living in Ottawa, and Evan tells me that his girlfriend, now fiancé, his girlfriend is working in an art gallery, and they're looking to hire someone, and they're agreeing to hire me and they can work out my papers and I can come down to New York. I couldn't even believe this was real. I was freaking out. Not two years before where Brady and I are talking about it, this is actually happening. So I'm like excited. I'm I'm jazzed up. I'm going to make the move to New York. I'm very new in my comedy career, but I think, who cares? Let's just do it. And at that point, it just so happened that my girlfriend lived in New York at the time. This was all coming together. I couldn't believe it. The forces were aligning, the stars, for me to live in the Big Apple. So I make the move, get to New York. I move in with Jen Grant, Christine Von Hagen, Stacia Jensen, who's an American comic. She was from Seattle. She's no longer in the, in the game. And we, were just, we just did it all together. We're just struggling, and it was fun, and just cut our teeth. Teeths? Yeah, I said teeths. And we just did it together. And um, the thing about New York, there's so much character, so much history, and you can just 
on any given night, you you work with all these some of the best comedians in the world, literally. And that in itself is inspiring. It was all just I never got over the fact that I was in New York for I was there for two and a half, almost three years, and it just felt like. I was in a movie the whole time. Just always looked around in awe. It, w- it was just great. So then, for immigration reasons, I come back to Canada by choice, I should say. And I'd never lived in Toronto. And Toronto, of course, is the the hub, the place to be in Canada for entertainment, for stand-up comedy, for film and TV. It's really good. It's a great, great scene. So I've been in Toronto for about three years doing the thing. So I'm eight years into this stand-up business. Business. Is that loud in your ears? I'm sorry. I should also say that I am a sober man. I like saying sober because it makes it sound like I had a problem. I never had a problem, but I, I'm clean. I live with, uh, or I quit drinking and smoking. I never smoke cigarettes, really, just pot. And I quit drinking coffee, everything cold turkey. It's, again, it sounds like I have a problem. I had a problem. I never really. It, it's just I'm an all or nothing personality, and the the definition of moderation for a comedian is quite different than say a civilian, someone who doesn't isn't uh, you know working in bars at night. So it just became a little too much, and again, not really a problem. It's just I'm just on a cleanse that's gone on too long. Nine months, and I'm good. Just gonna keep rolling with it. I feel really good. It took a long time to feel. Good. I mean, I felt for the first two and a half months still not even feeling normal. Uh, for me, the big one was pot. I smoked it. I enjoyed it way too much. And so when I quit everything cold turkey, yeah, like two, two and a half months, I was just angry all the time, just upset. That was my, I replaced all fun in my life with rage. I would just look for reasons to be angry, just walking down the street. If someone crossed my path, like they sort of, you know, when you're walking down the sidewalk and someone bobs and weaves, they don't know which direction you're going, I'd think, I'd find myself thinking this to myself, just keep right, you piece of shit. I was just so angry all the time. I kid about it, but I do, th- I, th- I think that should still be a rule. I think the rules of the road should apply on the sidewalk, P.S. So if you are just sort of all over the place, keep just keep right. And I just finally, three, two and a half, three months, started feeling better. See, the thing is, they say alcohol is a depressant. Well, you know what else is? Life. Chug that shit. If you're drinking right now, chug it, please. So I quit, and I feel much better. Yeah, sorry for breathing so heavily into your head. So that's my story in a nutshell. Thanks for hanging in there for that i figured i'd get all that out of the way first episode so you can know who you're listening to this is me baby jeffrey loves to laugh lots baby jeffrey don't call the cops we're sorry Okay, so obviously the name of this segment is called Baby Jeffrey, and uh, let me just tee it up. Usually would go right into the phone call, but I feel like I have to set up this one. So my friend, he does this great baby voice, and his skill pretty much stops there. As far as thinking on his feet, well, he could really use some improv classes, I think. Here's our first call, and uh, well, just have a listen. Hello? Uh, no. This is Jeff. Pardon? 
This is Jeffrey. No. My mommy. Ro wrong number. I need. I need my mommy. I need. My mommy. Okay, so at this point he hung up the phone. But naturally, I mean, my friend doesn't have much. All he keeps saying is that he needs his mommy. So we decide, well, let's call him back. And I'm just waiting for something to happen. This is us calling him back. Mom? Now, he's actually, at this point, mommy. looking our number mommy. up. You have a wrong number. That's impossible. I dialed his number before. I, I've dialed it. So again, my friend, uh, this is where his improv skills begin and end. All he's saying is that my name is Jeffrey and he's looking for his mommy. So not terribly creative, but I'm still going with it. We're, we're like, okay, that was okay. It was one of our first calls. We just, just to get it out of the system, get the creative juices flowing. And then all of a sudden, we get this phone call pop up on my computer screen, and I don't recognize the number, so I figure, let's just answer. Let's record this. So turns out it's the guy that we just called. His wife is calling. His concerned, poor wife is calling us back. Hello? Hi. Hi. Is this Jeffrey? Yeah, it's Jeffrey. Oh, it is. Are you a little boy? I'm, I'm three. You're three? Yeah, my mommy and, my mommy and daddy are here. Okay, so at this point, I'm freaking out. I'm sitting across the table with my headset on, and I'm waving like at him like, what are you doing? Like, don't. I'm three, and I'm my mommy and daddy aren't here. Three years old. Hilarious. There's only daddy? Oh, and my mommy and daddy are here by myself. You're by yourself? Well, yeah. Well, where are you? I live, in, I live in Toronto. Okay, at this point I'm freaking out. Red flags are going on. He may as well have called us someone and said, I'm going to fucking kill you. <laughs> There's no real difference. It's a full distress call. There's no humor. There's no jokes. So I'm at this point in full panic mode, and I'm waving my arms across the table. Finally, he looks up, and he sees me. And so when she asks again, are you alone, this is what he said after seeing me. You live in Toronto, really? Toronto. My lobby. Toronto? My lobbies. With your, so you're home alone? No, just a little bit. Just a little bit. Again, improv skills through the roof. Any could have said anything else. You're uh, so you're alone. No, uh, just uh, a little bit. Panic city. They just went Shall to I the store. The, should I call the police for you then? No, that would be a very good idea. And my mommy and daddy get in trouble. And so you can hear there in the background. I will call the police. So I'm freaking out. I'm panicking at this point. I'm like, there's no, are they really going to call the cops? I mean, because what, you know, but at the same time, the other part of my brain is going, yeah, why wouldn't they call the cops? There's a three-year-old alone somewhere in 
a building in Toronto. So again, I see this number pop up, a different number this time. I don't recognize it. I'm panicking, so I go, I'm not going to answer this one. I just ring and ring and ring. And at this point, I Google the number. Sure enough, Toronto Police. The Toronto Police Department is calling me. I then have to call and rectify. I call my friend. He's like, I had no choice. I'm, you know, you did the right thing. So I. this is me calling the police back. Toronto Police Switchboard, how can I help you? Hi there. I just called, uh, oh God, I just called a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, played a joke on him, and and uh, he hung up on us and called the police. And oh. bef- before I got the chance to uh, to rectify it and call him back, he had already contacted the police. And I'm I'm just calling to yeah, clarify. I'll things connect you to communications. Thank and this you. all took place in Toronto. Oh yeah, in the last like ten minutes, five ten minutes in Toronto here. Communications. Hi there. Hello. I just called. Uh, a f- I just played a joke on a friend of mine, and um, he uh, hung up the phone and called the police. And I'm just calling to sort of uh, clarify uh, the situation. What kind of joke did you play on him? I know, I really regret it. Uh, my f- my friend just called him, uh, and he does a very good baby voice. And they just assumed it was a baby on the phone, and he they hung up and called the police immediately. So I tried to call him back and it was too late and so i am calling to uh just sort of apologize and sort of clarify clarify okay i'm sorry you played a joke on a friend of yours sir what's your friend's address i don't know his address well how do you know he called the police because he told me because he told me because i called him right right back and he he told me he had already called the police so he said you need to call the police and and clarify it with them what kind of what did you do when you called your friend? You made a baby voice. Yeah. And said what? Just that uh, I was looking for my mommy, and then he hung up and called the police right away. Actually, at first he said it's the wrong number, and then he hung up, and then I called him back to say it was me, and then he, it was too late. He just called okay. a, a few minutes ago. No problem. I'm just gonna see what I can find, sir, because this is kind of like a needle in a haystack. Because there's like oh, several okay. people here. Hold on for one okay, second. Okay, sure. Oh, fuck. This is torture. That was so stupid. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for holding. So I, I might have found the call. Okay. What's the What did you say when you called your friend? Exactly. Do you remember? Uh, said I'm looking for my mommy. And yep. And uh, she said, "Are you alone?" I said, "Not really." And she said, "Do you want me to call the police?" <laughs> call the police. And I said, "But no. when you called your friend, what did did you give a name?" Uh, Jeffrey. It was really stupid, uh, but I didn't. Wow, you have no idea, sir, how much lengths we're going to try and find this person right now. How, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you? Thirty. Oh, wow, sir, that's that's. Uh, I'm glad you called. I appreciate it because we're going to incredible lengths right now trying to find out who owns this phone to try and make sure that this child's safe. So, what's your name, sir? Well, uh, my name is Julian, but but. The police already called my friend again, and he told them that it was a prank. But I just want to call myself and and rectify it. Okay, I appreciate you calling, Julian. What's your last name? Dion. How do I spell that? D-I-O-N-N-E. Okay, thank you very much for calling, sir. Okay, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, again, sir, it's not, I mean, 
I'm not going to give you a hard time because you're old enough to know better, right? So there's no point in me telling you. I already get it. We appreciate you calling, yeah. though. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So there you have it. 30 years old, and I'm calling the police to explain a prank gone horribly wrong. There you have it, kids. Lesson learned. If you're going to call, make prank calls, at least have some jokes and some humor peppered in there. Don't just call somewhere with a distress call. All right, let's get to my guest today. First guest of the Julian Dion Comedy Hour podcast, Mr. Dave Sidhu, restaurateur, uh, very successful here in the city of Toronto. He's the head of the Playa Cabana Empire, Mexican restaurants, and uh, had a great chat with him. We talked about he's got a background in screenwriting where he's lived in L.A. and New York City for a few years, which is where he fell in love with Mexican food and cuisine and culture. So enjoy my talk with Dave. Today's episode is also brought to you by HP Audio. Toronto listeners, here's another one for you. Contact HP Audio today for any DJ services for your wedding, for your private event, for your corporate function, for your corporate luncheon. That's right, luncheon. Contact HP Audio today for your elaborate audio installs and setups. Don't try to do it yourself. That never ends well. Contact the professionals at HP Audio. Email djhpaudio at gmail.com. That's djhpaudio at gmail.com. Enter once again JDCH in the subject line. You and me belong just like the flowers laughing all day long. People I need to lose sing a little song then take a shower all right, my guest today, well, what can I say? When you think of Mexican food in the city of Toronto, um, right away, one of the first names that pops up is Playa Cabana. Uh, my guest today, my first guest of the Julian Dion Comedy Hour podcast uh, is the sole owner of of this uh, this empire, this growing, this ever growing empire, his restaurants have seen wild success. I mean, they're always full. They're a hot spot for celebrities that come through town. This guy just seems to have the magic touch. What can I say about him? And, and he's done something unprecedented in, in three years, just three short years. Uh, he's seen such wild success that he's been able able to open a handful of restaurants. So you've got Playa Cabana, the original location, then followed up by Playa Cabana Cantina. Up in the junction there, we've got Playa Cabana Hacienda just down the street from Playa Cabana. This is the kind of success this guy generates. Uh, Playa Cabana Barrio Coreano in Koreatown. And this summer's uh, latest edition, La Libre. And coming to you in the near future, his sixth restaurant. Six restaurants in three years. Cocina Economica. I think I'm saying that right. Anyway, I wanted to have this guy on first because it seems like everything he fucking touches turns to gold. And uh, he's a good buddy of mine. My guest today, Mr. Dave Sidhu. Hey, buddy. Thanks for doing this. Hey, it's good to be here, man. Thanks for having me. You like the office? You like the studio? Lemon Press Studios? It's cool. I can barely fit under the ceilings, <laughs> but I, I dig it. You've basically paid for all of this, so I'm glad you <laughs> I'm glad you like it. Uh, I wanted to bring you in because you're an interesting guy. Your, your approach to success is um, is unorthodox, as they say. 
you just seem very humble. You say it like it is. It, there's no. I find like a lot of people, especially uh, at your level of success, there's sort of like a business filter where they're all business all the time. You're just like a regular guy. Again, you tell it like it is. You don't have a filter. Uh, you see do people sometimes, which we'll get into. It's a thing I've coined. Um, so I want to talk about sort of the arc, your your story, your your background a little bit because it's pretty interesting. You come from a screenwriting background, if I'm correct, which is where where you fell in love with uh, Mexican food. First, let's talk about Play Cabana. So so Play Cabana, authentic Mexican food, uh, six locations. The sixth one opening up soon. Um, actually, you know what? Before we do that, let's back up a little bit. So, your background—you would think someone that owns six restaurants, his background is, uh, you know, a Mexican cuisine chef. His whole life is passion. But you actually come from screenwriting, like I said before. So let's dive into that a little bit. How did you fall in love with Mexican food? Where were you in your life, and what were you doing? You're pursuing your dreams. You're out in LA or New York, from what I understand. Yep, I was in. I was actually in New York. I was studying literature here in Toronto, and then I dropped out of university, and then. I went to film school and uh, down here in Toronto, technical school, and then I kept writing screenplays and I directed a couple independent films, um, some short films, and then uh, and then I went down to New York to uh, try to sell some screenplays and maybe maybe get a job um, in some capacity. And uh, while I was down there, I had a day, I had a nighttime job working at, at a bar called Mexican Radio in uh, in Soho, and uh, and then from there on, I worked. To, I went to work at a place called Dos Caminos, on, the first Dos Caminos on Park Ave. And you know, coming from Toronto, we didn't have any Mexican food at that time, so. All the flavors and everything was really new to me, so I was like, mm-hmm. "Holy shit, man! This this would really fly in Toronto." So from that point on, it was always like a plan B for me to come back home and and to try to uh, you know kickstart a, a little Mexican restaurant here in Toronto. If things didn't work out in the film industry, and you know I had such a unique perspective on it because all the people that were in the states had kind of grown up eating Mexican food, but uh, you know in Toronto, as you know, I mean we we it's it's a relatively new thing. So almost immediately, like the nostalgia of just all this new to you that was so it's so known in the states is Mexican. It's such like a, a like a thing people go out for Mexican. Like I'm the same before before Playa. My uh, Mexican experience was literally Mexicali Rosa. So I was never like a big fan of it. I never knew it like they do down in New York or specifically L.A. more. But uh, so right away you're thinking, geez, if I went back home, opened one of these, I could make a killing if if this sort of screenwriting business. Um, doesn't happen for me yeah and, but i wasn't really kind of thinking i can make a kill I, I knew that it would probably it would, pro- it would probably fly but but it was more like you know I, I really started to get into the flavors and the food and the kind of the philosophy and the, the history behind the food um and reading a lot of cookbooks and reading about mexico and going down to mexico and and i, I kind of started to develop sort of an affinity for for the culture and, and for the food so it, it was more of an outlet where i could kind of be creative and you know maybe design a little space for the restaurant and and actually um, just kind of do something that was fun and exciting and that I was passionate about. But I never really thought it was going right. to you know, blow up the way it did, I guess. So you're down in New York. You're doing the screenwriting. What's the day like for a screenwriter? Like, what do you do? And where do you fit working into a Mexican restaurant in there? Does it start slowly taking over your life? Like, are you doing uh, part-time at first, but then you're so uh, enamored by the whole culture of it? Like you said, that you sort of more and more, uh, your time is more... Um, your energy, you lend more energy towards that, or do you just it just sort of happens organically? Like, how does that happen? Well, I, I think you know you get to a point where you got to make a choice, and, and I was I was at a point in my life where I was, you know, I had jobs, I had writing jobs where I was rewriting screenplays that were like in the fucking thirteenth draft, and by the time you got to the last page, the character didn't even have the same name anymore. Right. So uh, you know, and they were just tough to push product down the line so a producer can get paid, and you know these were films that we all knew were never going to get made, or um, and you know they paid good money to write to rewrite, but um, 
but I just didn't really feel like my life was going anywhere. So, so I, you know, cashed in my chips and, and, uh, you know, took a bus back to Toronto and, uh, did you, from when, from what I understand, you spent some time in LA too. Was that exactly. before that New was, York? That or? was, that was after New York. So that's when I'm, that's when I, um, when I realized, uh, you know, that, that, that I was going to come back to Toronto and I shipped everything back. So you came and then you come to Toronto and then when do you make the move to LA after, like after that? No, sorry. I, I moved from, from, from LA. I moved back to Toronto. Okay. So, so I went from New York to LA and a new in LA is actually where I got all the writing jobs and I was working in the industry. Got and it. that's where I got really kind of bogged down and said like, screw this, I'm going back. Right. So I literally took a, took a bunch of myself, put it on a bus and I, and I shipped my Jeep back. I shipped all my shit back. It was crazy. Came back. Yeah. All right. So, and, and just before we get into the, the, the Toronto chapter, what was it like in LA? So you go to New York, you're not quite getting where you are, so you go to the Mecca for, for this sort of thing. You move to LA. Exactly. And then you had an agent? How, like, how does that work? I'm pretty ignorant to the whole... Um, like, I didn't actually have an agent. I, I, there, there, there are a lot of people in, in, in LA that just kind of act as agents, and they're just kind of... Uh, they, they're connected with producers, and they hook you up with jobs, and you know they get a little cut from it. So they're just kind of guys working on the fringes, I guess you could say. Right. And did you... Right. How many like original screenplays would you have written, for example? Well, I wrote about ten or twelve of them. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, so whatever happens wrote. to those things, like they just sort yeah, of they just sit in a closet and that's it, and you never see them ever again. Crazy. And I mean, to me, it sounds the most so fucking daunting to write a screenplay. Like, how many hours go into start it, it, to it finish? Depends. Sometimes it flows really fast. Like I've written, like some of the most cohesive things I've ever written, and some of the most structured pieces I've ever written were came out and fleshed out in three days. You know, sometimes when the structure's there and the characters all have their goals and they're you know, and all the conflict is there. It's just kind of structured naturally, and then all of a sudden the, the script just starts to really write itself. You hear people talk about that all the time, and it, it is a reality. And then sometimes you got to push it to two weeks, but some screenplays could take fucking years, man. That's that's yeah. the way I I see it. Like that's the way I imagine it to be. Just like because I can't even imagine. I have a hard time sitting down for thirty minutes and writing jokes for my act. I can't imagine writing something that has a narc, uh, like you know, beginning, middle, and end. So. So you do that for a few years, and was that the dream? Like, was screenwriting was that your passion? Like, it was. You know, it was. That's really kind of what what for those in those years of my life is really what I, what I set my mind to, and is really what I wanted to accomplish. But I always tell uh, you know people that you know if you if you follow your heart, you're going to discover new passions along the right. way. Um, because you know you I, I was open to to new things, and I was out there following the dream. So my eyes were, you know, were open to everything, to meeting people, to to listening to their stories, to tasting food to kind of wanting to know what, what, what that was all about. And, and if I was in, a, in an office job or in a cubicle where, where I wasn't like really chasing the dream or loving what I was doing, you know, I, I would be kind of closed off and, and, you know, not learning new things about the world and not discovering new passions. So it was, it was the, the passion for Mexican food that was kind of born out of my journey of chasing, you know, a passion for film, right? Right. Well, well you say like if you would have worked in an office job, you may have been closed off, but... A lot of people that are pursuing a creative endeavor or their dreams often are, are closed off too. They're not necessarily open to anything else because they're so hell bent on getting, achieving success in that, in that uh, field. So it's kind of a blessing that you are open and to. That, it's that, a, that's exactly kind of where I became in, in my my screenwriting career was, I, I kind of started to, the wall started to close up on me, if you will. Right, and then so you discover this passion for Mexican food. You do the screenwriting thing. Okay, so how timeline. How old were you when you were doing these in LA, New York? Uh, I was about twenty-five to twenty-nine. So mid, mid to late twenties, mm -hmm. 
and this is your life. You're you're dedicating it to screenwriting. All of a sudden, you fall in love with Mexican food. You decide. To, do you decide when you make the move to Toronto? Is it? Are you taking a break from screenwriting, or you're just like, this is it. I'm done. Uh, fully turning my back on it, or you're just sort of. That was it. It was. It was. Let's do something different. Let's do something yeah. different. And yeah. you you had all this experience. So through your whole journey from New York to L.A., this whole time you're working in Mexican restaurants, going down to Mexico, doing all that sort of thing? Uh, just vacationing in Mexico, but yeah, but um, but also experiencing as much as I possibly could. But yes, working in Mexican restaurants and some other restaurants. I also worked at the Broadway Diner, which had a huge Mexican that's on the Santa Monica Pier. It's, I think it's no longer there, but it was a staple for many years. Um, but, uh, you know, you know, just they had a huge component of Mexican food on their menu. So, yeah, I was constantly learning and cooking Mexican food while I was writing during the day. Cool. Okay, so then you move to Toronto, and what happens? You move in with your 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 mom. How, like, how does this yeah, work? Yeah, literally, this? like moved back into the into the bedroom that yeah. I lived in, and you know, lived at home. I was broke, you know, and uh, you're just about to turn thirty. Yeah. Here you are, starting again from the bottom, living at mom's in your old bedroom. Exactly. And what's going through? Do you regret it at a, at at this point in your life? Are you thinking I fucked up? I should have just um, kept going a little bit, or are you just well, yeah, like, like it's it's more like what everybody else is saying because it starts to feed into right. you. everyone's like what a fucking loser. Right. He just went off right. the stage for four years, and he was supposed to accomplish all this stuff, and he's back here living at home, broke. I was actually working at a car wash for a while. Um, I think I was twenty nine. I think I was actually thirty at the time, and I was uh, working at a car wash detailing cars for that summer just to. Just while I was waiting to find the right place and trying to find an investor, because I actually started another restaurant before Playa um, right. with an investor slash partner, and things didn't kind of work out, and then I kind of went off on my own and opened up Playa. So it's really amazing how that really is what it is, because you can have your eyes set on a goal, but what other people think of you, it gets to you, man. You're like thinking because you're trying to craft your image in a way that you don't look like a loser because you've, you've, you know, you're you're decided to go on a. You're changing career paths at 30, and you have a twin brother. That's a good kind of pressure, though, I think, because it forced me to, like, I can't, like, even when I was working at that car wash, I was like, I can't let anybody know about this. You know, I can't fucking be right. here for long. Like, this has to just be, like, a, right. a quick means to an end. And, it, and it, it kept me driven and it kept me focused that I had a lot of years to catch up on. By the time I moved back to the city, a lot of guys who I knew were working in banking were already making a million dollars a year, and they were already right. buying huge homes and getting married and starting families and and you know, I knew other people in all sorts of fields that were just doing well. So I, I knew I had to catch up, and I knew I didn't have any time to lose. And I, I knew that I had to be do- as dedicated as I possibly could be, right? And and you have a twin brother. So at this point in his life, what's his career trajectory exactly. like? He's, he's he's one of those guys who's you know he was ban- he was doing you know relatively well in banking, and and um, you know my mom and my family would always kind of pair us up, and I was the fuck up, and he was the one who graduated university. And right. so there was a lot of pressure coming from that too, for sure. Right. I was also kind of a leader in my family in a lot of ways, but so, so there were, you know, there was a sense that I mean, maybe I was starting to let them down. So I, I needed to step up. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, you mentioned the first restaurant, you opened a restaurant by the name of Chimichanga. You have a partner and, uh, and tell us a little bit about that. Like, how did that go down? Well, yeah, you know, like th- this is, um, kind of an area of my life. I, I wish there's some parts that, you, you know, you wish you could kind of, uh, you know, not necessarily close off, but you could just kind of close the chapter on. And, right. But uh, people do bring it up, right. uh, so I do feel compelled to, to to speak about it. But yeah, you know, it, it was a situation where, you know, where one guy puts up the money and he's you know fifty one percent, and and then the creative guy's forty nine, and then the creative guy doesn't put in any money, so he ends up kind of doing all the sweat equity and, and work, and um, and eventually it just kind of gets to a place where it doesn't work anymore because the person kind of calling the shots isn't the person 
that's necessarily passionate about yeah. the concept and, 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 and that person that really need, who, that, that passionate person that really needs to take it to where it needs to get to because um, the, the decisions are being based on um, you know things that could potentially generate money versus you know passionate things that could kind of inject passion dollars and creative dollars into the company to really take it to where it needs to get to. So we didn't have that um, at, at some point. And a lot of things I would say were getting mismanaged. And we ultimately came to different, you know, to differences in terms of where we wanted to see the company go. So I eventually walked off. Luckily, I was able to purchase a condo in that time at Young and Eglinton. And, uh, you know, the condo went up in value. So I was, you know, when I'd walked away, I signed off my shares for $2. I remember sitting there with the lawyer and the lawyer said, well, you know, I looked at my ex-partner and I said, well, how much? And he said, the lawyer said, how much are you selling your shares for? And he said, well, nothing. And then uh, and I said, okay, nothing. And she said, well, you know, you can't sell something for nothing. So I said, two bucks. So uh, <laughs> so we have this, uh, this inside joke that, you know, he still owes me two bucks. <laughs> but uh, but um, luckily, and, 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 you know, I mean, I shouldn't talk bad about him. We, I did. I was I was able to, to, to purchase a condo during that time. And, um, you know, it did go up in value. So I had negative 500 in my account. You know, I called my friend who was also my mortgage guy for that condo, and I said, I'm fucked. And he said, well, you're not that fucked. You could always do a refi. And I said, what's a refi? He said, well, your condo went up in value, so I could pull you out, like, you know, 20, 30 grand out of it. And uh, I said, how soon can you do that? And he said, well, like, as soon as we can get get it done, like a couple of weeks. So uh, I just started looking for locations and tried to find places that I could potentially take over for 20 grand. And then uh, I found this little place, uh, you know, the original Playa Cabana, and I spoke to the landlord, and I... And I showed him some magazine articles, and I told him how passionate I was, and and um, I really tried to sell him on on, on how excited I was, and and uh, I told him I didn't have the thirty thousand dollars that we agreed to for the business because I knew I needed the twenty that I had to build it. So um, I, I, we agreed to what's called a VTP. If you can convince somebody of, of how passionate you are, that they'll you know they'll 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 let you pay them back the money like as you make it. So it's right. called a VTP, which is the vendor take back. So he agreed to that, and um, I paid him back in literally a few months. But that, that's amazing. And how much time, like timelines, timeline wise, what, how much time has been in between you? So Chimichangas was open for how many? Two years. Uh, well, well, there's three locations. Um, all together, they were open for about four years. Four, four years. Four years and change. Maybe so that's even closer to five. But I walked away towards the tail end of that. So I mean, the, the company was still running before it ultimately closed. Got down. it. And how long? And and do you still speak to this guy? The uh, no, I, I literally haven't seen him since the day we sat with the lawyer. Wow. And so, how much time go- is between that and your opening the original Playa Cabana? Oh, that was that was a few months. That was that a few was months. Normal, normal. And are you thinking? A couple months. You've got your eye on the prize at this point. You you've gained some experience in the res- restaurant business. Your first restaurant, obviously. Or, and now you're thinking. Uh, I, I got this and you're actively looking or is part of you shitting your pants a little bit? Are you like, Oh fuck? Like, um, no, it was, it was like, it was kind of like, kind of like, you know, and I hate to say this cause I don't want to talk bad about people, but it's kind of like getting out of jail. Like you'd never be afraid to get out of jail. You know, you, you, you just want to kind of run for the hills. Right, right. Right. Um, so for me it was like, I got this 20 grand. Um, you know, I got this deal on the table. This land is going to let me go in and build my own thing and do my, do my own concept. But the most important thing was that I was 100% in control of my own destiny. Like, even if my mom had 100 bucks to give me, I wouldn't have taken. Even if my brother offered me money, which he didn't have to offer, I don't think. And, you know, I, I was I refused to take a dollar or a penny from anybody. I, want, I was determined to do this on my own terms. So so um, I was more driven by, by, by the kind of excitement and the happiness of, of being on my own. You right. know, after being in, a, in, 
in a situation in a partnership for four years where you're basically just saying yes and then running, yes and then running. Right. You know, because because you kind of let your partner talk you into the fact that he put in all the money and, you know, your stock, your stake is kind of worthless. It's just like sweat equity. But, I mean, to a large extent, I take responsibility for that because, like, I allowed that, that relationship to kind of evolve the way it did, right? Right. I'm dying. I would die to know what he thinks now, seeing your crazy success. But just to go back... So you start Play Cabana with a $20,000 line of credit. Okay, I tell people this once, like, it comes up and I talk about you. You know, you're, you're my friend. I'm proud of your success. And I, so I share your story a lot. And when I tell people you started this thing with the twenty grand line of credit, they often don't believe me because the restaurant business seems like it's so crazy, first of all. It's such a crazy business. And to start something like how how does that happen with with uh, such little amount cuz that's nothing to to start up a restaurant and especially having seen where the tra- trajectory has gone with now uh, six locations coming up uh how do you turn 20 grand into an empire basically like like do when you get into a location like i'm just thinking off the top of my head i'm being naive about this I mean, I got to imagine there's got to be equipment to be bought. And like, how do you get all that off the ground with a measly $20,000? Well, you use you use whatever shitty equipment you can to get yourself going. And then you kind of, when you save up enough money, you'll buy, the, you know, the piece that you've always wanted. Just keep upgrading. I mean, exactly. it is a brilliant way of doing it because exactly. then you're not well, yeah. you're not in debt for exactly. uh, all this money. It's, I mean, it's and, in, and when you have the credit score that I had back in those days, you really have no choice, right? Like, right, right. It's like, you got to do what you got to do. And so you start Playa Cabana, which is at 111 DuPont, the original location. It's in a house. It's a it's a it's very quaint. It's nice. How like so when you get the location, it only has the X amount of seats that you have inside, uh, which at the time must have been like around what thirty? Forty six. Forty six. A forty-six seat restaurant. Does it have uh, equipment in there already, or are you buying? Uh, there stuff? was some old equipment, and I also I also should say this that I did a lease with a small company because I knew the guy, even though my credit wasn't there. I knew the guy um, because we did a deal before in the other in the other company um, for for leasing some of the equipment. So right. so so that's a great way to keep your money in your bank to hold on to your money because you're going to need your money for cash flow. Um, you set up a small lease with people, and they, you can get a a fryer, you can get a fridge, you can get all the little things that you need, and you, you know, then, you know, you get 20, 30, 40, you know, 20, 10, 20 grand worth of equipment, and then you slowly pay that off in monthly payments. Right. There you go. Okay. That answers a lot of my questions. And at first, so did you sell your condo right away? To, to no, get I, I didn't sell it at all. I just did a refinance. So so because it went up in value, they refinanced the mortgage, and I was able to pull money out of the condo. So I still have the condo today. Oh, you still have that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you're just renting it out sort of exactly. thing? Oh, cool. Exactly. So then... So that's so you decide to rent it out for I'm guessing uh, income and then you actually moved into the building of Play Cabana. You lived there for a while, right? Exactly. That's the one thing um, that that I always tell people is the the turning point for me was when I decided to rent out my condo because I couldn't carry the mortgage anymore and uh, to live in the basement of the restaurant. And that's really kind of what got me ahead of the game because I didn't. Number one, I didn't have any expenses, personal expenses. And number two, I was living in the restaurant, so I'd wake up in the morning and I would hear the guy drop off the fish or the guy drop off the vegetables. And, uh, you know, it was just, uh, I was buried in it, you know, woke up in it. It was, you know, it was just my life and it was pure dedication. It's, you know, it was the, it was the point of no turning back. You know, I kind of put myself into the point of no turning back. There's this quote that you like to say, uh, I've heard you reference it a couple of times and you're the perfect example of this. It's burn your boats. Mm -hmm. Why don't you explain a little bit to the listeners what that means and sort of, 
how you've done exactly just this. You've you've burned your boats in a way. Yeah, and that's basically kind of what I what I was talk what I just talked about was. I mean, I remember reading a long time ago that when Hernando Cortez landed in Veracruz, Mexico, just on the Gulf of Mexico there in, in 1519, you know, they started to walk in land and um, he started to kind of discover all the promise of this new land that he that that, that they just that they, they just landed in. And um, he was so determined to continue the mission um, that he said he gave his lieutenants, you know, one instruction. He gave his two lieutenants one instruction. He said, go back to the shore and burn our boats. We're not going back. And um and that was for me. That was you know that was something that I realized at that point in my in time that I needed to kind of do was burn my boats because we always have these excuses. I, I I can't chase my dream because I got to pay for this or I have a kid or you know I got I got all, I got my 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 OSAP that I got to pay back or mm-hmm. people kind of make these excuses up because it kind of gives them a bit of comfort. Um, and uh, I, I knew that that once you when, once you burn your boats and you burn all those excuses and all those things that are holding you back that you put yourself into a position where you have no choice. You can't go running back to mama. You can't go home anymore. You can't, you, you got to continue the mission, right? I, lo- I, lo- I mean, I love the story. It's such a romantic t- story and it, it feels like so long ago, but really it was only three years ago. Yeah. So at this point, so you're Crazy. playing, a, you're living at Cabana. What's your staff like? How many people do you have on hand? We started point? with about three or four. Right. Um, and then quickly grew to about eight, nine, then to 15 and now you know now we have over 250 260 employees but, that's insane but yeah and so okay so you uh, cabana so how long did you live in 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 the restaurant until you moved out and uh, got almost unique? a year and a half that's insane uh, yeah. dude that's crazy yeah it was weird because i i live in a, i bought a small condo in yorkville that i live in now and i remember like now when i walk when i walk in there people come over they're like how, how do you live in this place it's like a bachelor it's really small but right. to me at that time, it was a fucking warehouse because right, I was coming right, from right. sleeping in a basement where my bed was built over a desk. You know, when I had, like, if I literally lifted my head up a half a foot, I would hit my head on the roof. Right. See, you know, so, so I mean, to me, that, that bathroom was huge. You know, that, that's why I moved into it. Because Cabana's already, it's pretty small. And so just paint the picture a little bit for the listeners. So there's the, there's the prep kitchen downstairs and then off in a, a room, which is a tiny, tiny room. So there's a desk, and on top of the desk you had like a. We, we just built uh, just a couple pieces of plywood, and uh, we just kind of wedged them into the wall and just secured <laughs> them into the wall, and then, and that's that would put a mattress on top, and that was my bed. So I would jump off my desk in the morning, and then I'd jump off my bed and I would land on my desk. So um, when when we sh- things started to roll, a few months into it, I had to hire an office person, um, a woman, and when and her her office was in my desk, so she would start work at nine o'clock in the morning. So by the time Sometimes she would come and work, and I'd be, you know, we'd have a big night of drinking tequila, right. you know, with the boys upstairs, and then all of a sudden, you know, she'd come in, and then I'd be snoring for an hour while she'd be <laughs> right underneath me, like, you know, work, answering phones and working, and then I would just get up and, like, land on top of her desk, and she'd say good morning, and then, uh, and then you know, I'd start my day. So. It's an ama- I gotta tell you, man, it's an still am- a shower down there. It's an amazing day. story. There is. Yeah. <laughs> there is. Yeah. Still a shower, and... Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's really a remarkable story. You really, there's no, there's no, uh, I mean, you ate, you eat, breathe, and sleep, and your success, and your passion, and I mean, you literally did that. I mean, there's no way, there's no other outcome than to be successful when you're that dedicated, and you're that deep into it. There's no other outcome. I mean, whether, 
let's say the restaurant didn't do as well, you're still going to be a success in your way, in a way because you're so passionate about it and you're living it. Like you're living every moment of it. You're providing employment for these people, you know, some of them immigrants. And it's such a beautiful thing. So you're open for, was it a year and a half before you opened their second location? Exactly. Well, we, we, we had opened up the back patio at the original location. Right. And we started to get into a big tiff with the neighbors because it was really busy. And there was a condo built right at the, at the end of the property, literally touching the patio. And overlooking the patio, so um, we went to court over this. I mean, you know, we um, I had a legal team, they had a legal team. A lot of money was spent. I mean, ultimately, it just kind of got nowhere. Um, it's not that it didn't get. We ultimately did a deal. We got the front patio, and we had to give up the back patio, which was fifty three seats. But Jeff Beatty, who who uh, you know runs Woodbridge, Cap- who used to run Woodbridge Capital, who was one of the big finance guys, you know, in, in the city, he lives in Rosedale, and he's he was a big regular there. And one day he said to me, he said, he said, you know. He's like, what are you doing? He's like, you know, why are you wasting all your time worrying about a $100,000 back patio? And it was more than a $100,000 back patio, but, I mean, that wasn't the point. The point, what he said, he said, you know, he said, you got to, what you should be focusing on is, is expansion, and you, you want to you drive up the street in 20 years from now and, and look past this place and point to it and say, look, that's where it all began. And um, when he said that to me, well, that was a life-changing conversation. Um, that's when I realized that it's it's time to move on. It's time to... To forget about this little battle that I'm having with the neighbors, because in the grand scheme of things, it means nothing. I, I I barely even think about it anymore, as big as it was. But um, and then you know we went out for the, over to the junction. I was friends with some of the guys that were in the junction because I was buying some of their antiques and some of the reclaimed wood. So, um, I purchased this huge liquor sign, um, at Cantina. It's a 17 and a half foot liquor sign, which is now at the back on the back bar of Cantina. It's kind of the set piece of the of the of the space. And um, there, I bought it from a store called Smash, and they they have a policy that that you know if you purchase one of their big antiques or any of their stuff that and you don't take it out of there in 15 days, then they can reclaim it and resell it. So I had to get it out of there, and I spoke to a guy who was directly across the street from the store Smash, who was in, who was in an empty space, and he was the um, he was the uh, the guy that took the superintendent of the building, and I said, hey man, I got to store this thing. Can I pay you? Can I lock it up in here? And can I just pay you? Because there was no moving this thing. It's like 18 feet long. It's so heavy. And um, we, we could barely get it across the street. And I said, can I just leave it here? And I'll pay you. And then he hooked me up with the landlord. And the landlord said, sure. And the landlords came to eat at our restaurant at 111. They said, hey, why don't you do this there? And at the time, I, I really was thinking it was a big space. And I was thinking maybe the timing isn't right. But um, but my sign was already in there. We put it up on the wall. And then all of a sudden, I thought this would be a great place to build a bar. And then we started to buy some other big set pieces. And that was kind of the story of how Cant- Cantina came to be. Um, so it was kind of fortuitous that way, but, but, um, but yeah, and then, and then things started to really roll at Cantina and then we were able to go open up Hacienda and leverage Cantina to open up Hacienda, which was across the street from the original location because people couldn't get in. There were long lineups and we wanted to create a bigger venue where people can come in with parties of eight tops, 12 tops, even 20 tops mm-hmm. with a private dining room on the third floor. So, um, and, and, and it worked out. It took a long time to really find a rhythm at Hacienda and to really get it rolling, but, but, um, it's doing well now, so. I mean, it's really, really remarkable when this, when your friend Jeff told you that someday you want to look back, drive down the street and point at the original location and say, this is where, where it all began. I'm sure in your mind, you imagine that would be the case, but far further down the road. 20 years ago, like you said. Yeah. And and this is where three and a half years later, not even three and a half, it was three years this May since the Pikamana all started. You've got five locations now. So like you mentioned, Cantina in the Junction. And this is the thing about the Playa Cabana restaurants. All crazy successful. You go there at any given night at 7 o'clock, there's a lineup out the door, which is 
which is really remarkable in this business, which is so up and down. So then you play Cabana Cantina in the junction after. Then last summer in July, if I'm correct, play Cabana Hacienda. You open up to sort of relieve the the play Cabana, like you said, and to get uh, accommodate bigger parties. And then how does Barrio Coriano come about? I remember when you told me you're opening another location, I thought, he's fucking crazy. Like, how is this happening? Like, this is an addiction at this point. So that one's been open for about, what, six, eight months, maybe? Uh, well, Hacienda? No, uh, Barrio. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, but yeah, Hacienda was open from July, and then in August we decided to open up Barrio because we had a... We had a, we had a we had um, we had a taco at, at Hacienda that was called the LA Truck Taco. That's right. That's that right. had uh, Korean cowie beef and uh, you know Asian pear slaw, Korean pear slaw. So I was constantly driving down to Koreatown, which was you know about you know f- ten minutes away, um, and, and I was buying these ingredients at PAT, which is a grocery store there. And I was kind of discovering new things again, like just kind of looking in the grocery store and seeing all these new ingredients and how they would match up well. Thinking about how they match up with well in, Me- in you know in, with Mexican food. And then as one of the storefronts was open, and then. Like just we just looked into it, and then all of a sudden it was available, and then we just kind of on a whim decided to take it. So, well, this is another mark of your success. Is again, like when you were a screenwriter back in Los Angeles, where you're open to other things. You know, some people might start a restaurant or a brand and be dedicated to one specific thing. We're going to do only authentic Mexican. Where all of our restaurants are going to have the same menu. All of them are going to look the same and feel the same. But your approach, your style is sort of, again, open to different things, discovering new passions. I'm sure you didn't know much about Korean food back then. And now exactly. your knowledge is, you know, you met all these great chefs and people. And, yeah, and we had to take a crash course in it, you know, buy all the books, you know, meet whoever we could, learn, eat wherever we could. And, you know, we didn't actually go to Korea, unfortunately, but uh, we hired a Korean staff. We brought on some Korean chefs that really helped us formulate that menu. But absolutely, you know, I mean, Toronto is such a small city and all of our restaurants were strategically set up within a 10, 15-minute drive from each other. You know, two of them are across the street from each other. Um, actually, three of them now, Libre's behind Hacienda. So so um, you, you gotta kind of keep them different and keep them challenging. It wasn't more so a thing of like, let's try to pretend these are all very different so that we can kind of fool our customers into thinking that we have this huge diversity. It was more of a thing from inside that we said, you know, what is it that's going to make us What's what's it gonna what's gonna challenge our creativity? Like why? What is our motivation from opening this restaurant? Is it to make more money? No, because it, it's never to make more money. Because you're never gonna make more money. You're always gonna kind of, you, you know, you, you, if you think that way, you're gonna cross compete with yourself and you're gonna cannibalize each venue. But it, it was always about how can we create a, a challenge for ourselves and how can we come up with a, with challenging ways to, to be creative and to to discover new things, like you said. And um, that was always kind of. You know, the impetus behind it was just to, to, to keep creating new things. And, you know, we'll always bring back a staple like the, the Brancho Braised Short Rib Taco or the Fish Taco. People ask for it, so inevitably we kind of bring it back on our menu. But but um, what we really used to kind of kickstart the place and, and design the venue and come up with the initial menus and hire the staff and, and, and create a culture, it always comes from kind of something that's new to us and something that's mm-hmm. going to be challenging to us, right? Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, man. I mean, it's amazing. Again, they're all they're all different and unique in their own way, in their own way, and they're all great. So you've got Barrio Coreano, which is Mexican and Korean infused, which is very unique and and awesome. Go check it out that in Koreatown. And then this summer, opened the back patio of Hacienda. Now, how did this come about? So, you're at first I got so Hacienda. How many seats in Hacienda inside? Inside, there's about 120. 120, and then you have this back 
patio that was a grandfathered license and you're trying to jump through the hoops and the red tape to get it open. You finally get it open. You've got about 60 seats out there. How does that turn into an, a restaurant of its own? When, when does that idea come? Was that originally from the, th- from the beginning when you saw the space, the building thought that is going to be its own thing? Or just organically all of a sudden think, hey, what if we get a separate kitchen because our, our main kitchen might not be able... Is it like a thing of our kitchen inside might not be able to handle the volume with all these extra seats, so let's just do this separate thing? Like, how does that happen? That you open- Well, you pretty much nailed it. it. It was a culmination of all those elements. Um, there was definitely the concern that because we were so busy inside that there was no way that that kitchen could barely even ha- I mean, could handle outside because it could barely even handle inside as it was. So it was... It, we started to kind of look at things like outdoor cooking and, and smoking and burning wood off charcoal and um and then we looked into the yucatan because the yucatan the key characteristic of yucatan cuisine everything there is smoked and everything comes off the grill and it's all outdoor cooking and it's always been that way in the yucatan so we started to we actually took a couple of the chefs to a school um, in the yucatan uh david sterling's los dos school in 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 merida yucatan um we also read his cookbook which is kind of the bible of yucatan it's just called yucatan uh, of yucatecan cuisine it's um by David Sterling, I highly recommend that. It's probably the most concise um, book ever written in in any region of Mexico, in any in any in any Mexican food cookbook that I've ever read. It, I'd put it right up there, maybe even number one. But uh, um, and, and we just kind of studied it, and we were challenged by it, and we came up with all the. It's kind of like exotic Mexican food. It's there's so many so many different citrus flavors, like the the sour orange juice and the achiote marinade, and we just kind of got into it, and we just decided this is going to be a completely separate thing. Um, called La Libre and we kind of tied into their history there and they've always kind of struggled to become an independent nation um, they have a long history of of, of uh, the desire to be Libre to be free uh, so so we kind of tied into that and we kind of had some some you know so we, we also kind of used the notion of like free riding motorcycles and and that was kind of our logo you know kind of you know we you know the idea of like riding to the border and just kind of being free and that's kind of how we tied into the common kind of the common the common consciousness that way but um but yeah that's how that whole concept came to be that's pretty cool i didn't mm-hmm. realize the uh i didn't realize the story behind la libre how you chose that name that's mm-hmm. that's really good so as of today you're sitting on five locations play cabana play cabana cantina play cabana hacienda la libre which is the back patio and of course play cabana barrio coreano and most recently I'm sure we can talk about this because you've you've posted on social media. You've acquired a sixth location, uh, Cocina Economica. Yeah, Cocina Economica. Uh, Cocina Economica is whenever we're in Mexico, uh, we're, we're always kind of eating off the beaten path, and and um, it, it's 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 where the ladies in the neighborhood they'll open up their homes and they'll cook for the for their for their whole neighborhood, and they charge very little. Very, it's very inexpensive. They don't serve any booze, unfortunately, but. Uh, uh, they um, and they they it's all home style cooking like a lot of stews, a lot of caldos, which is like consommes, a lot of just things that are just slow cooked. Um, it's real kind of home style cooking at its best, and and um, it's the thing that we crave the most. We actually just went down to Mexico with a couple of our chefs, Guillermo and Josh, and Guillermo is going to be heading uh, the kitchen there at Cocina Economica, and we actually cooked at six in the morning. We'd get up, and these ladies would let us cook in their kitchens, and they're teaching us exactly how they did things and the philosophy of why they did things and showed us what ingredients were available to them. And uh, just the idea of this is about cooking for the neighborhood. This isn't about making a shitload of money. This isn't about being fucking cool. This isn't about following trends. Like all the trends were, you know, a couple streets over where all the tourists, all the tourists were, you know, but 
if if you're coy enough and if you're smart enough and if you care enough, you can actually walk and find a cocina economica very close to anywhere you are in Mexico. But you'll have to eat, you'll eat exactly what the locals eat, and not not what the locals eat when they're trying to be cool, but what the locals eat every day. And it's the kind of food that's really really nourishing. And we actually created it. We went to the same ones over and over and over on, on our on our ten days that we were there because it's it's just it feels so nourishing and it just feels like a real home cooked meal. And that's what we're really going to try to you know translate here. That's pretty cool. And any what's the timeline? Are you thinking of? Well, uh, we actually purchased the the real estate the property, so. Um, we um we closed that real estate real estate deal on October twenty second. We're in there now, kind of measuring, and you know we have a good relationship with the vendor. We're actually hiring all their staff. We hired all their entire staff because uh, you know we wanted to kind of hold on to the jobs in that neighborhood in that community, um, and we also wanted to you know make sure that 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 there was a smooth you know transition and that the regulars there they're a busy place right now, so the regulars there could kind of still see the same faces and we're even going to keep some of the tortas and some of the staple sandwiches that they currently have on their menu there. So it's not an empty space. You're you're buying a business that's already there. Exactly. Oh, got we it. also okay. bought, bought the building as well as apartments upstairs. Oh, cool. That's mm-hmm. that's amazing. Congratulations on that. Thank you. And, um, well, what, what can I say, man? Your story is amazing. Like I said before, three years in, you're sitting on six restaurants. Clearly, you're you're guided and driven by your passion, which is admirable and can be learned by uh, everyone. Uh, something I think a little some some so everyone can take a little something away from uh, from you can learn. I like your your hands-on approach. Your you know after all the success, you're still just a guide doing your thing. And uh, I was gonna mention this before. <laughs> I was gonna mention this before. I just want to touch on it a little bit, but there's this thing called I I coined that you've been sea dude. This is <laughs> this is a thing where you will have a flare because you're an emotional guy. You, you you tend to wear. This is how you differ from from the typical successful business man. You don't have that business filter where it's all business all the time. You wear your emotion on your sleeve. You tell it like it is, and I think that in part is what contributes to your success. The people that work for you are. De- dedicated at a crazy level to you i mean everyone just loves you you're a leader that leads very in, in unconventional ways but uh like again just see dude is when you you sort of explode i've seen you a couple times maybe explode on someone and then within a couple minutes you're sitting down with that person having a beer saying <laughs> i think i fucked up because you're that kind of guy you, you you can see both sides mm-hmm. always you get you know you're so passionate that if there's a little momentary slip where someone doesn't meet that passion or doesn't mm-hmm. see your vision mm-hmm. you'll freak the fuck out but within five minutes again you're sitting with that person <laughs> going listen i messed up actually yeah. and you're this your your humbleness well that's part of uh growing right as an individual right in character and you know um you, you obviously learn you got to know that 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 when you mess up and when you when you step out of line and then you sit down with that person you apologize but and you know, I I've worked a lot on that, and you know, I've I've learned more and more. I'm learning more and more. I should say to to really think things through and to kind of say things ahead of time and and uh, put the right systems in place, um, so that it doesn't you know hopefully have to get to that you know and and um, thinking things through before you kind of explode is always kind of the better, more effective <laughs> fruit you know. It might not be the most endearing, right. but uh, but uh, in the end, it, it's it's more effective. So I'm a little more relaxed now, and things are starting to fall in place for me. So. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm a little content. I'm a little more content now with the way things are running. So, 
you know, hopefully that there's those things don't have to happen anymore. <laughs> no more subduing. I mean, it's entertaining as all hell <laughs> when it does happen. Yeah. But uh, yeah, man. Um, congrats again on everything. When I think of the cucina that's going to open, I think of that food we had that day uh, upstairs at Cabana. Uh, oh, yeah, Ramon's exactly. wife's friend. One hundred percent. Amazing. That's exactly it. It was just the moles and the sauces and home cooked. Oh yeah, just good, just pure, pure goodness. Well, I could talk to you all day. I mean, I really could. You're a very fascinating, interesting guy. You're engaging. Uh, I wish you all the best. Uh, anything you want to plug uh, coming up? Like uh, your oh website? Go to playcabana.ca to check out all the locations. Look for the look for the new. I'm doing your plugs for you. Look we're for also the, doing a, we're also doing a test kitchen um, at Forecasting Economica on. Uh, September 23rd at the LCBO. We already did one that was really successful last week, so we're doing one again um, just to kind of see how the public reacts to this Cocina Economica-style dishes um, down on the lakeshore, the LCBO on the lakeshore. So you can you can call them and ask to say you want a ticket for Dave Sidhu, Playa Cabana, and we're doing another demonstration where we show you four dishes and you get to eat the meals and you get to drink all the wine you want to drink. I think tickets are like 60 bucks, but... Everybody who it was a sold out show, the one we did last week, and everybody said it was well worth the sixty bucks. You get champagne, you get wine, you get four courses of Mexican food. So, and where do they get information for that? LCBO. LCBO, yeah. Oh, this cool. one, the next one is on the twenty third. It hasn't been announced yet, so tickets should still be available. And it's going to be the twenty third, which I believe is next week, and it's going to be on the Lake Shore, uh, the Lake Shore one, which I'm not sure exactly where it is, but it's going to be in the Lake Shore location of the LCBO. Well, thanks, buddy. Uh, I appreciate you as a person and uh, check out again playcavana.ca uh thanks a lot bro thank you julian thanks for having me man this is awesome yeah glad you enjoyed it and and, uh, watch your head thanks brother that's the show ladies and gentlemen episode one is in the books thanks to my guest dave sidhu and thanks to you for hanging out i'm thrilled i'm excited new episodes Coming at you every Tuesday and Friday. Next episode, episode number two, drops on Tuesday, September 23rd with my guest Mike, the word man of Alcatraz Bennett. He's a very talented individual. He's the singer, songwriter. He's the voice of Garage Baby and all those jingles that you've heard on the show. He's got a great story and I'm excited to share it with you. Be sure to go to jdcomedyhour.com for upcoming shows. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at jdcomedyhour. Facebook.com slash, you guessed it, jdcomedyhour. Hey, if you're in Toronto, come to the live show, Julian Dion Comedy Hour, the show. Let's say what, 67 Front Street East at Church, downtown Toronto, every other Wednesday. Next show is on uh, September 24th. That's actually next week. On the show is Tricks, Rob Mayu, and Rhiannon Archer. That's a stacked night of stand-up comedy. Come check it out. Thanks to my producer, Adam Fox. Thanks to Miles Lacroix, my sound engineer. Hope I'm not forgetting anyone. Oh, quick plug. If you need any artwork done, he's done all of my graphic art. He's super talented. Wojtek Arshyshevsky at Single Malt Studios. Check him out at singlemaltstudios.com if you need any sort of artwork done. I hope I'm not forgetting anyone. Thank you again. Oh, and Mom, if you're listening, we made it. And I love you. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you on Tuesday. Watch your head.
Check, check. Check, check. Check, one, two. <laughs> check, one, two. <laughs> what the, am I supposed to fucking say the same shit? No, no. All right.